Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And this is My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. That's right. We are storytellers that talk about storytelling. And that's what we're doing today. So today we're going to talk about something a little different. We were, I don't know, a couple of months ago... Barbie, one of our dedicated fans, requested that we talk about how stories can be told through music. And Hi, Barbie. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then, um, and this time we came across a video game that really has novel-like storytelling capabilities. It's one of the most unique video games I'd ever played. And that's definitely true because we've seen a lot of video games. I can't say played because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at playing video games. No, you like to watch. What? Tell them what happened when <laughs> we were playing Uncharted. And <laughs> and that's a video game where you're like a treasure hunter. And we gave you the controls. Yes. W- one control moves you back and forward. And the other control shows okay, where you, you look. You act like I knew this before I started I'm, I'm playing. I'm just explaining <laughs> how... When you explain what happened, how that could possibly occur. Okay, so the thing is, is that I never really played video games. You need to keep that in mind as you listen to the rest of this story. You played Barbie on the computer. Yeah, but I couldn't beat it, so I made Gabe play for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you're not me and you're not your brother. So what happened when you played? So you had already reached a checkpoint. So you were like, hey, why don't you play around for a little while, you know, moving the character and just exploring the surrounding area while I run this errand. And I said, okay, sure. At which point I accidentally looked up at the sky. (laughs) The character did. And then I accidentally couldn't figure out how to not look up at the sky. (laughs) And therefore I accidentally walked off a cliff. Oh, that so it's is a really so great good thing that you reached a checkpoint. Yeah. <laughs> I could just imagine your character. <laughs> what, is, what is so interesting? That he's like, oh, watch out for the... Oh, I imagine that if that were an online game, it would have been very funny for the other players to watch this one character just off in the distance, walking off the cliff, looking up. Yeah, yeah. But Uncharted, as far as storytelling goes, is an awesome game. I just loved that storyline. So since I was incapable of moving without dying, <laughs> I was forced We're to looking watch you down. play. <laughs> I was looking up, okay, at the heavens, <laughs> Father. Is I that what it was? I was looking up at the virtual heavens. Oh, well, you know, we had talked about <laughs> how cool the setting was. This is a legitimate conversation we had. We had talked about how cool the, the design of all the places was. Well, that's was. true. That's true. The sky wasn't nearly as interesting, though. <laughs> how would you know? <laughs> I've never invested Did the amount of energy. Did you time to look? <laughs> nope. I will next time now, <laughs> just to check it out. Okay, so we're going to talk about gameplay and storytelling in this episode. But first, an update. Dorothea, do we have one? I'm still filming that Catholic girl. That's true. That's not a Sunlight Press update, but it is happening. It is. It is. And On my phone, because my computer is a demon beast from hell. <laughs> wow. That's where it's located. Yes. Oh, it's in your room. Actually, when I was at work, I was having problems with my work computer, and 
I renamed the computer on the drive Demon Beast from Hell because I was so frustrated and I needed to be able to find certain documents. So I knew that anything that I transferred from this folder, I was transferring because my computer wasn't working. And so I was unaware that sometimes my boss needed information from my computer because I had all the assets stored locally. And I found out about his using my computer after he was using it. And I'm like, so there's a folder on my computer. And he's like, oh, I know. So uh, as far as an update from my side, I'm finishing up Sins and Suicide this weekend, so I can send it off to the editor. I'm on her schedule for mid-February, so I'm hopeful that in March I'll be able to release that. Lost and Found is online, but it hasn't... Available for sale. Available, yeah, but I really haven't promoted that yet because I'm trying to get some things done on on my website and and stuff like that to help augment the mailing list. And I got to tell you kind of annoying. Well, it's also very time consuming. And when you have a full time job that is mentally taxing, it can be rather tedious to come home and be like, all right, let's spend seven hours doing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's the awesome, annoying part. So I'm working on that. But if you want to get it, you can. And then I'm going to do a promotion with that later. And uh, then Sins and Suicide should be done soon. And as soon as I can get done with that, I can start working on Gods and Martyrs, the fourth novel. That was the worst commercial for Lost and Found ever. <laughs> well, it's online, but well. you know, I'm just so busy with all my crap <laughs> that I haven't really promoted it yet. But if you want it, I guess you can go pay for it. <laughs> What's wrong with that? So anyway, that's going on. Also, I am going to the Smarter Artist Summit in Austin. What's up? In March, uh, the last <laughs> week of March, which is really cool. And what's really great about that is that a lot of the people that I have learned from online and have told them how much I'm I'm grateful for their selflessness in regards to relaying information and their lessons learned and so forth. I have met them online and communicated with them online, but I've never actually met them in person. And a lot of them are going to be there. So it's really cool. It is really cool. And plus, when you pay to go, you also get to be a member of a private Facebook group where all the other authors that are going are interacting. And so I'm already getting to know them as well. And so many of them are insanely more successful than I am. So I'm really looking well, forward. because they don't say, you can buy my book if you want. <laughs> if you want. Yes. I, I mean, I released it I'm not it really all. promoting it. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to talk to them about my strategy. <laughs> and so that's going to be really interesting. I can't wait to speak with them and talk to them. And it's a two-day intense summit, kind of like a workshop thing where there's a lot of people who have been very successful in the independent publishing space. They're there to teach you and, and present what they do well and also gives you a chance to interact and network with fellow authors trying to do the same thing. So that's kind of cool. Now, you know, we talked about how much of a struggle it is to kind of market our stuff because it's kind of this weird niche, right? So there was one author that's going to this thing I'm going to meet, and he presented himself as kind of doing the same thing. So I was interested in that. I kind of looked at his books, and they kind of sounded similar in the sense that they were fiction with religious characters. And so I said, well, I can't wait to hear about your experiences, you know? And so I say that, and then he replies back saying, well, you know, my characters, it's really hard to market my stuff because... My characters, you know, they cuss and swear. But then I'm thinking, wow, if I have a hard time, like my books at least preach to the choir, right? There's a segment of it that will go, well, I'm a good Catholic or Christian. I enjoy this. But his stuff's got to be even more impossible because he's writing religious characters that aren't nice. You know what I mean? That is going to be so great for you to connect with him at this conference and be able to talk to him about your stories. And yeah. maybe you guys can create a game plan I don't moving know. forward. Let's you see. can mutually support each other to your non-existent audience. <laughs> <laughs> and here's a tip. Don't just go, yeah, so release the book. And <laughs> I'll worry about that later. But if you want to get it now. Yeah. 
So anyway, that's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting these people in person because I, I kind of felt like this was the right time because I'd interacted enough with them online that it was good to kind of take that business relationship to the next level. And I thought if I waited too long, that opportunity would kind of dissipate because there would be other people at that place. So that's what's going on, Dorothea. Very exciting. I'm, I'm really focusing on this next year to try to really take the business and my writing to the next level. So I'm really excited about that. And one other thing is that we came up with a really cool idea, which I'm not going to talk about no. for the next novel series. But the fact it's, that we're... It's really exciting, actually. I'm, I think I'm more excited about you writing this novel series than I am about you converting one of my favorite stories that you've ever written into a novel. Yeah, because I think these next ones, as much as I do want to write that one, that's more of a horror book and, and there's not going to be any crossover to the Gabby Wells universe. So I think it's important to focus on some sort of a adult version of mystery and thriller. If people are attracted to that series, then they may be attracted or or direct other people to the Gabby Wells series too. So the important thing is to just have as many books out there as possible so that you can attract as many people as possible. But I'm really excited about that. It was like one of those aha moments where we're like, oh, that would be perfect. But there's some research I have to do about how certain people can do or can't do certain things that's really critical to the heart of the story in the series. So I'm going to have to do that first before I start writing. And I'll hopefully start writing that first novel after I finish Gods and Martyrs for the Gabby Wells series. It's going to be really cool. I can't wait. It is. All right, so Gone Home, Dorothea, that's that's the name of the game. So can you set it up a little bit for us? So Gone Home is a video game that was created in 2013, and it takes place in the 90s. And the basic premise of the story is that a girl comes home for the first time after being abroad for a year to find her house completely empty in the middle of the night. What's even more disconcerting for you and the girl, because you are, it's like first person, except instead of a shooter game, it is this girl trying to figure out what happened. She goes home, and this is also a home she's never been in. Yeah, because her family moved while she was away. Right. So she comes home to a city she's never lived in, to a home she's never lived in, on a stormy night to find that her parents are missing, her sister is missing, and there's a note from the sister pinned to the front door that says... I don't want mom or dad or you to try to find me. I don't want you to know where I am. Then you enter the house, and that's where the story starts. So it's kind of creepy, especially in the beginning. It is kind of creepy because you don't know what to expect. And I think part of the creepiness honestly comes from the fact that most of our gaming experience has been through shooter games. So this was a completely different style of gaming. It wasn't fantasy. It wasn't violent in any way. It was just walking about the house and trying to figure out what happened. And that's kind of unsettling in a way, because at least when you're playing a shooter video game, you know that people are going to try and kill you at some point. Like, you know to expect that. But when we were playing this game, we had absolutely no idea what was going to happen when we turned the corner. And what's really cool about it is that it also plays on the idea that the social stereotype of a dark and stormy night and a home alone. And so you expect a serial killer sort of experience to be occurring, too. So they they play on all of these preconceived ideas of what would happen if you walked into a home like this. And what's really cool about it is that imagine you and your family were all away from your house and someone were to walk into your house. What would they discover about you? simply by walking through your house. Well, they discover that I have excellent taste, (laughs) first of all. (laughs) That would be the first thing. That would be. Um, I can't cook. They would also discover that. How would they know that? Um, Based on the number of takeout containers in the garbage. Good call. 
But they could look at your clothes to see your style. They could look at your prescriptions to see what kind of medication you're on for, and then you could guess what illness you might have. They could look and see if you're a book lover or a movie lover or a music lover. If people were to walk into our house, they would know by the religious iconography that we are Catholic. So there's a lot of stuff that you can learn about people you've never met simply by going through their stuff, really. What's really cool about this story is you walk into this house and setting it up so that the, the protagonist, you, doesn't know the house either. Like a good Hitchcock movie, it immediately puts you in her perspective. And so you enter this house and you just kind of have to figure it out. You have no idea of the layout. You have no idea where bedrooms are or kitchens or anything. Then you enter this house and you start just going through stuff. And what's really clever about this story and about this game is that you find out different things in the story that uncover probably parts of the family's life that they haven't told each other. So you find out things about the husband and the mother. You find out things about the daughter. You listen to the answer machine and there's a crying voice on there looking for someone. And you're like, what the heck is going on? And the music's kind of spooky, eerie. It's just really, really cool. And you're kind of, remember like every time I'd go in a room, I'd like turn on a light? Because I, like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know, this is just too unsettling. Well, and the interesting thing about the music, though, is that we listen to the score from the video game after we played the game, and it's actually not eerie music. No, it is It's isn't. very calming. And I think the setting really changed how we heard the music. But another thing that was really interesting about how this game was set up was the fact that they locked off certain parts of the house. You had to do certain things to get to certain parts of the house. And because of that, they took you on a narrative journey. You had to follow the path that they had pre-designed. Right. I mean, and that's what was really, to me, from a design perspective, really brilliant. Because, as you said, one half of the house is completely locked off. So you can't get to it. And so you must go this other direction. And they also bet, I'm certain, on human behavior because there's two or three options you could go on. I bet everyone only goes in one option because the narrative unfolds naturally if you take that option. It's kind of like a, a novelist saying, well, I have 10 places where the story takes place, but they have to start in the cafe. And if they don't start in the cafe, the story won't make sense. And so when you can freely roam, though, let's say a novel where this game, and you could freely roam to any of the 10 locations, how do you get the reader to go to the cafe first so it makes sense? And they did a brilliant job of doing that. It's really cool. Well, and we had also talked about, once we had finished the game, how they must have done some kind of behavioral study. Like, right. What are people most likely to do? Because, for example, the right side of the house was completely locked off at the start of the game. You had to do certain things to get the key to enter that side of the house. And I think that's partially because the majority of the population is right-handed, because my instinct was to go to the right, and your instinct was to go to the left, which was unlocked, and you're left-handed. Right. And also, they did another piece where they the right part of the house was darker. So you weren't naturally, your eyes didn't naturally draw you there. And also, for any people who grow up where, like, we drive on the right side, a lot of things are geared to the right side. So they did a great job of going, it's dark over here, you don't want to go here first. And if you go over here first, it's locked anyway. So go to the left. It was just a really smart idea of how to tell a story. And it was one of the most novel-like game experiences I've ever played because you're not interacting with anybody. You're alone in this house finding stuff 
and reading things and learning stuff just like you would in a novel, except you're actually walking around from room to room. It's pretty cool. The most interesting thing to me was the character development, because we learned so much about the family and we never met them. Right. And the only character we didn't really learn much about was the character we were playing. You learn almost nothing about her until one point you find out that she's successful at stuff, which makes sense because she's studying abroad. But that's it. So it's a really like a blank slate of because honestly, our character doesn't matter. You know, because almost anything that they do beyond the general sort of she's good at stuff is going to interfere with maybe who we are as a player. So they're really smart about keeping that a blank slate. It's kind of like in movies where film actors at the most emotional moments know that there's going to be camera work and lighting and music. And so at the right moment, at the most critical moment, oftentimes actors have a blank face so that we will project our feeling and our emotion onto that face because we've experienced this whole movie up to this point, and whatever we think that character should do next, then that's what we're going to make them feel. And so they did a similar job of like making a very blank slate and going, look, I want you to think what you should feel. Because in the beginning, I was probably more creeped out, like Gabe was watching. He wasn't creeped out as much as I was. But So each of us are interpreting this event, this experience differently. So it was a really interesting game to play because we'd never seen a game designed like that before. Right. I mean, you look at games like Uncharted. You you mentioned that before. And that has a really cool story, too. I mean, it's much more of an action type of story. Their action sequences are fantastic. Amazing. I actually saw one in the second Uncharted game that was stolen. And used by and Fast by, and Furious. Yes. Yep. Almost exactly in the trailer. I'm like, oh, I saw that. I actually played that. <laughs> So in the Uncharted stories, they kind of it's kind of like an action movie in the sense that it's like 25% character, 75% action. And I got to tell you, their action sequences are so well designed and the gameplay is so well designed and executed that when I get stuck writing, especially in an action sequence, I say to myself, what would Uncharted do? <laughs> so there's a sequence in the opening of the second novel, Lost and Found. I won't tell you about it. But there's a sequence about five or six chapters in that I was like, what would Uncharted do? Because I could do anything here. And I'm like, oh, I know what I'll do. So I was inspired by the action sequences of that video game. That's really cool. Yeah, I didn't know that that you did that when you were brainstorming. Yeah, because I don't have any original ideas. (laughs) (laughs) This Gone Home game. There were some different reactions to the game that we saw online. A lot of people really loved it. And we had been talking about this, and we think it's because you really do form an emotional connection to the characters in that game. And that's not very common with video games. So that was really interesting to see people's reaction to that. I personally was kind of disappointed with the game. Well, I I liked it a lot. So Jonathan, if you're wondering, (laughs) this is where we don't agree. There are some voiceovers in it. So some of the things you find while you're reading it, there's also a voiceover which is telling you what's happened. And the voiceover acting was phenomenal. I think that's what makes the game, more than anything as far as the human connection goes, is that it is so well performed and so concisely written because it's, there are these short little segments that it's amazing that in those you put those little things together and then suddenly you have this kind of emotional connection to these people. So that was pretty cool. It's actually funny how we're kind of reversing roles. Whenever we're creating stories, you're usually the plot guy and I'm <laughs> right? usually the character person. That's, that's so true. And you really love this game because it's very character driven. And I found the game disappointing because I didn't think the plot of the story really fulfilled the premise they set up. 
Right. And I could understand that. But to me, and again, this is a complete reversal of roles. I can understand that. But at the end of it, I was satisfied emotionally with this game. And the plot actually... I wasn't, Jonathan. (laughs) But the plot... In case you're listening for the first time, my my nephew Jonathan said we need to be more combative and antagonistic to each other on this show. Which we are in reality. (laughs) But I don't really think the way that we're combative is appropriate because we just start annoying. That's right. I thought actually the way the whole story unfolded was clever and correct. So when I'm writing a story, you'll often hear me say it should be simple, right? Like if I'm trying to think of a plot device or a red herring or something or a motivation for the character, to me, it has to be very, very simple because we're very simple usually in our motivations, whether it's greed or sex or revenge or something. So whenever anything gets too complex in my brain... I know I'm not heading down the right path. So this video game, Gone Home, only takes about two hours, three hours to play in its entirety. But I thought that the way that the story and the plot unfolded, it was correct. It was the most likely scenario out of all of it. It made sense. You just wanted it to be different. I just found it unsatisfying. It wasn't that it didn't make sense as a story, because it did. It made sense. But I didn't find it to be fulfilling it's kind of like with the series finale for how i met your mother they kind of turned it on its head which is not what happened in this game to be completely honest this game was very logical in how the story unfolded but the premise of the show how i met your mother was not really fulfilled in the series finale and to me that's kind of what i experienced right no i understand a lot of conversation in the publishing world right now is where will virtual reality kind of lead storytelling and to me, this game is the first step of that. I mean, this was as close to playing a novel as I think you could get because it's kind of like a solitary experience where you uncover a world, sometimes by reading. So to me, this is a great example of that. This is completely unrelated, but I'm very fascinated to see how virtual reality technology could aid education. Well, you know, virtual reality came out first off in the 90s. And there was this big thing like we were going to go there and everything was going to change. And by now, people were supposed to be the same predictions you hear now were predicted back then, which people would be more interested in the virtual world than the real world and things like that. Which, I mean, look at social media is is a little bit true, just not in the way that they <laughs> that they guessed. That's true, because we're all presenting the best parts of ourselves, not the real 100% of ourselves. And, you know, this is completely unrelated, but, you know, I think that there is a healthy balance between technology and and living in the real world. But I'm really interested because I saw this video of a Disney artist drawing his characters like the Little Mermaid in 3D. He had a virtual reality mask on and he drew them in 3D, which was so cool to watch this video. But I just think it'd be incredible. Like, let's say you're learning about anatomy to like put on a headset and then be in the human body and see how it functions or how it works or to create a virtual reality of what an ancient city would have looked like. That would just be so cool to me. No, I agree with you. And those are the exact same thoughts I had when it first came out. Because I'm like, we talked about just... Of course that they are. (laughs) I know. We think a lot alike. But for example, we were just talking about the other day about how ISIS destroying these historical sites because they see it as idolatry or blasphemy or, or something like that. And it'd be like, wouldn't it have been great if someone had laser gridded those sites and so recreated virtually so that I could go and actually walk around this place and see these things? You know, wouldn't that be cool to go into the old Colosseum in its heyday instead of the one that's there now, that kind of thing? Who needs a TARDIS? Who needs a TARDIS? <laughs> but the big hurdle for virtual reality to me is the exact same hurdle for 3D. So People love 3D generally when they go to the movies, but unless you don't have to wear glasses at home, no one's going to buy it. 
So we talked about... You guys got to work on that. You got to work on it so 3D doesn't go away. Come on, I believe in you. Well, there already have glassless 3D televisions that are just really expensive. And unfortunately, the consumer demand isn't there to make the manufacturing costs go down because the volume isn't there. Yet. But 3D is already going out of vogue. You can't... <laughs> it's really hard to find televisions it'll come with 3D. Back. You know, 3D was out before, and then it went away for a little while, and then it came back, and I think it'll go away, and then people will want it again. Well, I think virtual reality is stuck in the same problem. So when it first came out, everyone's like, well, wait, I have to wear this really clunky headset and these earphones, and and it just didn't work. I mean, who owns a virtual reality set from the 90s? Nobody. Who's bought Google Glasses? Almost nobody. So the thing is, is that virtual reality is really cool. It is really immersive. It can be used for education and entertainment, but it's still hardware that is abnormally odd for your normal existence. I mean, again, we're not even wearing Google glasses. Well, they're ugly. Honestly, people would wear them if they were less ugly. (laughs) But the point is, I think virtual reality is cool, but I think the same problems exist as do with 3D at, at home. Wouldn't it be so cool if there were some kind of virtual technology? Because they're building these like microscopic cameras, right? So let's say someone is having a really complex surgical issue. So they figure out a way to insert a camera into someone to like get information. And then they could like blow it up on like a virtual reality scale and see all the issues. Because how many times do surgeons open someone up and be like, crap, this is worse than we thought it was going to be? That was about four surgeries ago for me, actually. (laughs) And last time. (laughs) Literally what happened. She opened me up and went, Wow. So my two-hour surgery ended up being a seven-hour surgery. So that was nice. My wife wasn't worried at all in the waiting room as the hours passed and she didn't know what was going on. Anyway, I strongly recommend that you get the game. It's it's cheap. It's under 20 bucks. If you have a PlayStation 4, that's what I played it on. You can pay for it on the Sony website and it'll automatically download to your PlayStation. So it's a cool game. I recommend you get it and try it because it is a different and I think satisfying way to play a game. There is some things that devout people may find offensive. So you have to know that that's in there. But overall, I think if you can deal with the world today as it is, nothing there will surprise you. There was a thing in that game, though, that I thought was hilarious. There was So again, this takes place in the 90s. And Mm -hmm. apparently these people like videotapes and they have X-Files and all these movies that came out in the 90s, you know, scribbled on their videotapes that they recorded off of cable or something. And one of the movies there was The Dark Crystal, which when it came out, I saw in the theaters and I thought it was cool just because it was puppets and Henson and they did a lot of cool things with puppetry I'd never seen before. So I really liked The Dark Crystal because of that. But you and my son have had a slightly different experience. Okay, so here's the thing. The thing is, is that it's, it is a very cool idea, but it's also a little creepy. Well, yeah, it is creepy. It was even creepy when I saw it and as a teenager. Yeah, an older person. And <laughs> older. <laughs> older than a toddler, which is what I was. Yeah. So where did you see this movie? So the thing is, my grandfather loved The Dark Crystal, and he would get so excited whenever my brother and I went over to my grandparents' house to stay the night because we would get to watch The Dark Crystal together. And he just thought it was such a cool movie. And, you know, it was one of the few movies that he had was quote-unquote appropriate for children because he was a big fan of war movies, and you can't really have <laughs> Gladiator on the TV <laughs> right. when you're like five- and two-year-old grandchildren yeah, be in like, the room. like, don't look, don't look, <laughs> don't look. Oh, don't really look. don't look. But, you know, the Dark Crystal wasn't any better because it gave my brother and I nightmares for years. Years. And and you never told him. Well, no, he got so excited. We didn't want to hurt his feelings. So you guys, wait a minute. So you guys would sit down and go over to Poppy's house and go, 
Man, I hope he doesn't make us watch Dark Crystal. No, we Crystal. knew he was going to. He did it every time. So you, wait. So we I just want to get this story straight. Gabe and I would be in the car in the back seat on our way over there. And I would lean over to Gabe and I'd be like, he's going to make us watch the Dark Crystal again. And Gabe's like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you would you would go, you would sit down in front of the television. He would plop in the DVD and you it guys. Was the VHS. He would plop in the VHS. And you guys would be terrified. Yeah. And then we'd have nightmares. <laughs> so we usually slept in the same bed after that because we both had nightmares. Why didn't you tell us? We could have told him. We would have bought him. We had a crap ton of movies he could have used. Because he was so excited and we didn't want to hurt his feelings. And besides, Noni always bought us donuts the next morning. So it kind of made up for the emotional scarring. The funny thing is that you saw a commercial like yeah. last year. Yeah, I, I never knew. I never knew this ever, <laughs> ever, ever until about a year ago. And then you saw a commercial on television for the Dark Crystal, like the 70th anniversary or whatever. It's not 70 <laughs> years old. <laughs> 25th anniversary or however long it's been since the movie came out. And Gabe was in the next room and I was in the same room that you were in. And you're like, oh, hey, have you guys ever seen the Dark Crystal? It's a really cool movie. And tell him what our reaction was, Dad. I think it was something like, no! <laughs> yeah, we yeah both you and Gabe screamed. both screamed. Gabe from the other room. <laughs> and we both we both screamed very passionately. Yeah. And, and then I'm like, why? What is, <laughs> it's a puppet movie. <laughs> My favorite thing, though, is that you were telling someone else about that experience a few days later. And you're like, so apparently my children have this very long history with the Dark Crystal <laughs> that my wife and I were not aware of. Yeah. Yeah, so so in the game, you know, one of the rooms is a TV room, and and the cool thing is you can just look anywhere, right? So you're bending down and you're looking at stuff, and there's, you know, like I said, the X Files, Labyrinth, all these '90s, '80s movies, and then there's the Dark Crystal, and I'm like, oh look, you want me to pop no. that in? <laughs> no, it was so great. So check out Gone Home if you can. Check out Dark Crystal nope. if if <laughs> No, no, you don't need to do that. Life is a pure and beautiful place. And <laughs> Really? <laughs> no. But you know the thing is why make the world any darker than it already is? That's true. I'm sure adults are going to listen to this podcast and be like, what is her problem? It's a puppet movie. But you know what? You don't know what it's like to be in the mind of a child and have your grandfather show you a movie that emotionally traumatizes you for years. <laughs> so wow. don't pretend you know. <laughs> you know, I will say this, though. This Gone Home game and the fact that it seems like a novel in a game form there's a TV series that was also like a novel in a TV form, and that was Babylon 5. Now, I tried, we've talked about this, tried to get you to watch Babylon 5. It's, it's not good. It's, the acting in the first couple episodes kind of is awful, but the story, if, so remember you say there's some books that you hear people say, if you can just get through the first 10 chapters. It's, it's not really- a good book. <laughs> that's, what, that's what my cousin told me. She wanted me to read a book, and, and I started reading it, and I am someone who compulsively has to finish stories, and I just couldn't finish this book. I'm like, this is a terrible story. And she's like, no, no, it just takes the first 10 chapters to get good. And I'm like, it's 30 chapters. That's a third of the book. It takes a third of the book to get good. That's not a good book. Well, if you can get through about five episodes of Babylon 5, it gets a lot better. But that is something I would like to see remade because the screenwriter and creator, J. Michael Straczynski, he actually thought of it as a novel and he pitched it as a five-season story arc that had to be funded for the whole five seasons because he wanted the story to be completed. And so they made the whole thing. And actually, they replaced the lead actor in the second season by basically moving him off the station and bringing someone else on. 
And so it got a lot better after that. Well, and we had talked about the differences between Babylon 5 and Star Trek and why was Star Trek more successful than Babylon 5? Because they were both, you know, poor quality at the time. It was, <laughs> yeah, they were equally cheesy and stiff acting cheesy. and not great special effects. But there was something magical about Star Trek that Babylon 5 didn't have early on. And I think it was the actors, honestly, even with Shatner's overacting, you know. It's it, kind of like charming overacting. Though, it is. You know? Spock. Can we? <laughs> he just he pauses. He, just pauses he does every weird. time he says Spock's name. He pauses. Yeah. And in some way, it was charming or entertaining. Like all of the characters, even when they were overacting, there was enjoyment in it. And that's not something that the actors had in Babylon Five. It's similar to what we talked about with Back to the Future when they had to recast that role because it wasn't that the actor was doing anything wrong. He just he wasn't funny. Yeah, and that's really weird. If you look at the scenes that Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz was a big deal in the 80s. He'd been in John Hughes movies. He was in a movie with Cher about a kid with disfigured face. So he was a big deal then. He's a handsome guy, actually. And so he got the original role of Marty McFly. And they have on, on one of the DVDs some of the scenes that were shot with him. And they ended up replacing him because all the scenes he did were fine. The acting was fine. There was nothing wrong with what he was doing. Except he wasn't Michael J. Fox. Yeah, he wasn't funny. Like Michael J. Fox is inherently kind of mischievous and funny. And you're just like, something stupid's going to happen. Yeah. And it just brought levity to the same scenes. It's really kind of cool. But since you brought up Babylon 5, it's really interesting how you thought that that was a very successful show because it had a complete storyline. Right. And we're right now in the middle of watching Avatar The Last Airbender. Yes. Because Gabe and I are making you. Yes. And as opposed to Dark Crystal, that was a (laughs) insanely pleasant viewing experience for you and Gabe. Uh, yeah, we love that show so much. But we always thought one of the reasons that show was so successful because it was mapped out from the beginning. It was three seasons long. Yeah. I think in general, television shows that have an ending set are better. I'm really surprised at how good the Avatar TV series is. Don't confuse us on the movie Avatar The Last Airbender. or that doesn't need to be spoken of. Horrendous movie. <laughs> or the Avatar movie made by James Cameron. This is the animated TV series on Nickelodeon. And what's really cool about it is that the first season, they kind of introduce you into the world, into the characters. And again, it's it's an animated show for kids. We're only two seasons in. We have one more season to go. And the second season just layers in all this backstory. And it's kind of disturbing in a child animated show sort of way. It's really deep and thoughtful and kind of sad sometimes. And I'm like, what the heck am I watching in the best way possible? You're like, how did they fit this into this show. It's really, really amazing. My favorite thing about the creators of Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra, because the same people created both shows, is that they don't shy away from adult issues in the children's show. That always amazed me because they deal with these very grown-up problems in excellent ways for a children's show. I remember there was one episode in the second season of Avatar The Last Airbender when I watched it for the first time and I turned to my brother and I said, did that really just happen? Did they really just, this is a children's show. Did they really just do that? And I think it's fantastic because I think it's helped kids who've watched the show be able to recognize these things and grow into healthier people because of it. Yeah, because they don't play down to children. You know, most children's programming is either really, really stupid like vapid stupidity. Without the laugh track, it's just awful, right? Most of the TV is that. Or when they do these things, like one of the characters in there is blind, right? There used to be things when I was a kid called the after-school specials. 
So I think it was ABC used to do them, and they were basically short little movies or TV shows, like one-off stories, but they were specifically designed to cover a topic like teen pregnancy or something like that. And they were always just really, really sappy. Like if they would have done something with, with her, the, the blind girl on the Avatar show, it would have been how much she struggled and how sad that is. It'd be really sappy music. And that's not her character at all. Oh my all. gosh. And no, no, her character is so cute and scary. At the same time, it's just great. It's just so well done. And that's what I think makes it so successful is that they treat it just like a story arc, a character development opportunity. They don't sit there and go, all right, this is for kids. Remember, the balloon is red and the water is blue. No, they go... This kid's blind, and here's how she deals with it. Because you know what? You're going to come across blind people in your life, and they deal with it differently. They expect more from their audience because their audience can take it. It's it's just really well done. It's fantastic, and I, I hope the creators continue to be successful in their careers. Yeah, they're, they're really, really good. That's kind of cool, Dorothea. Today we've talked about storytelling using different kind of formats, primarily the video game for the Gone Home game. If you want that, there's a link on our show notes. Also, talking about Babylon 5, Avatar The Last Airbender. Yes. Dark Crystal. You know what's so funny is you just found out that one of the weird laughs I would do. Which always made me laugh. Is actually inspired by the Dark Crystal. Yeah. So now it makes you cry. Makes you weep inside. inside. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dorothea. So this is it. Season three, episode two in the books. Yay, yay, yay. (laughs) I don't know what that means. It's excitement. It's oh. excitement expressed three times with a deep voice for power. I, need, I don't know. I need to check the Google <laughs> and see. Uh, thank you guys for listening to us today. Please comment below, rate us on iTunes. We would love to hear from y'all. If you would like to contact us, please feel free to do so at Pete at PeteBowerBooks.com. Gosh, that is such a clever name, right? I know. Yeah. I don't think I've ever said the phrase dot .com without going dot .com. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're you're just selling it. <laughs> And also, you know, if you want, there's second book in the Gabby Wells series is out there, Lost and yeah. Found. Although, if if you're I mean, gonna, if you want, if you're gonna read it, <laughs> I, I was just thinking that you could leave a review. Yeah. But it is okay, either way. <laughs> what are you doing? I don't know. Uh, I slip into random accents uh, at random times that, in my life. Must come in handy in the business world. <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't. Surprisingly, people are offended when you start talking in accents that are not your own. Wow, interesting. Even uh, if you can't help it. All right, we'll, uh, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.